Well, hello there. You are very welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan. I think you're really going to enjoy this extract from one of our classic episodes with former Taoiseach Enda Kenny. To hear the full hour-long interview and more deep-dive chats with hundreds of the greatest Irish people ever to have left our shores, along with our other series, Irishman in America with Marion McKeown, and lots, lots more benefits, head to Premium Irishman Abroad at patreon.com forward slash Abroad. This will only take you a minute, and for less than a fiver a month, you'll gain access to absolutely everything we make, and you can walk around with the confidence in your step that you have helped this series survive and grow through these very difficult times. Our chosen charity partner is, as always, Jigsaw.ie. Jigsaw are a youth mental health charity that does tremendous work, providing young people back in Ireland with the mental health skills they'll need to survive in life. And since the pandemic, they have seen a 400% jump in demand for their work, for their one-to-ones and their group services. With their phone line, their webinars and their website, Jigsaw.ie, are making a massive difference back home across all communities. Why not take a couple of minutes to visit them and see if they can help you or someone in your life, or maybe through a small donation, you can help them. That's Jigsaw.ie, the chosen charity partner of An Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Enda, thank you so much for doing this and being here this evening. On behalf of everybody here, thank you, first of all. I do want to say that because this is, I feel like you might be the perfect guest for the night that we are here for, for many, many reasons. Not least Mm. that you steered Ireland through maybe its darkest hour economically. And this is a country where there's a great sense of not knowing where things are going to go next. What is your view of what, pre- what is presented to this country now? And how do you view it, given that you too mm. were there when Lisbon was presented to the Irish people, and we had no trouble going back to them mm. and asking them, are you sure you meant what you said? Well, the first thing is that uh, in politics, you have to learn to recover. You have to have resilience put up with a lot of things. I came over on the flight this evening with 16 All-Ireland medals or 20 All-Ireland medals from the Dubs, (laughs) who destroyed us over. (laughs) I was down there behind the Sam Maguire, not knowing whether to grimace or grin, (laughs) as team after team came up, and our beloved red and green were on the pitch. But your question is a good one. 
What is presented now is confusion. It's confusion. You ask anybody in the streets of any of, any of this great country, and that's the answer that you'll get. Clarity on one side, confusion on the other. The result, nobody can call it. Lisbon, we've a written constitution. So, nobody in the European Union, of all the 28 countries, could have benefited from Lisbon unless it was approved by all the countries. Sovereignty in Ireland is vested in the people. But the government were quite entitled to say, why was it that Lisbon was not passed on the first attempt? And the reason was confusion. Because it ranged from abortion to conscription. And that treaty was so big and so broad that people were not able to understand all of the details. So we went again 18 months later and 700,000 more voted yes. So everybody in Europe could benefit from the contents of the Lisbon Treaty. Whereas in Britain here, obviously, sovereignty is vested in the MPs who are elected by the people of the Commons, not in the government. Because the governments of all the 28 countries, including Britain, accepted the deal that was on the table, mm -hmm. but not the Commons. So you'd have all those votes and all that argument three years on from a referendum which I did not agree with, which I find it difficult to accept, but you have to deal with the consequences of it because that was a decision of the people accepted by the government of Britain at the day. But as was said, you've seen more of the doll than anyone else. You've yes. served there longer than anyone. Mm -hmm. You've seen so much change mm -hmm. in that time that that Lisbon rerun feels like a different era altogether. It feels like this happened now as a result of the changes that have happened in the world and just the changing political landscape. Did you, yeah, can well, you talk to us about the changes you've seen and whether you ever thought that Boris Johnson would be Prime Minister? Well, <laughs> well Boris, hello. <laughs> the thing is that I was elected in 75 or 24 years of age. I didn't see that, I didn't see those pictures Great since hair. then. My Great God, hair. my God. I thought it was Springsteen, but however, <laughs> anyway. It's like, it's like, you know, reflecting on being elected at the dawn of history. Because in those days, you, you didn't have any mobile phones, you didn't have any television coverage, you didn't have anything like mass communication or instant responses or fake news or all of this stuff that's, that's changing the world and causing a lot of, a lot of difficulty in a lot of places. So, so your, your doll, your parliament in Ireland of, of the day, you went through the, the well-tried structures and motions of, of doing legislation and all the rest of it. And then it began to move. And you went through the, the 80s and the 90s and into the noughties, and then the economic collapse. Now, I got a letter from, from a man the other day down in, um, in Ballinalee in County Longford. And he said, I just want to say thank you for, uh, for what you did for the country. And I rang him up. And in the course of the conversation, he said, do you know what they were talking about down here in 2012? And I said, no, tell me. He said, standards and poors and fitches, the rating agencies, because Ireland was on the edge of junk status. And the day I walked into government with him and Gilmore, it had an 80 billion bad debt portfolio on the backs of your people. Goes to states, interest rates 15%, blocked out of all the markets. Unemployment 15.2. You were losing 10,000 a week. Had to go to America, Australia, England. 
And mind you, because of our very good relations with this country, Britain was the first country out of the blocks to say, we'll give you some money. First country. So, no. We paid that back. I came over to Downing Street. Actually, you go into the, in the door of number 10, straight through to the back, on the left-hand side, is the same cabinet room. I sat in the same place as Collins and Griffith when they did the treaty negotiations in the 1920s with Lloyd George. It's the same room. But Britain was first out. I worked very well with, with uh, David Cameron at a European Council level, where you have, you know, the triangle of power is the Commission, which shows the legislative base, the European Parliament, which is elected directly by the peoples of the 28 countries, and then the European Council, which are the leaders, the prime ministers of the countries. And they range, let's say, from Luxembourg, 400,000 to 80 million in Germany, 55, 60 million here, France, Italy, the big countries and the small countries. But the point is, when you're in that room, you're on your own, but you're the same as anybody else. Votes are equal. So when Sarkozy said, you must increase your corporate tax rate, I said, no, I'm not going to increase our corporate tax rate. It's part of the European treaties. And if you want me to resign and go home now, I'm not going to do that. I'm here to do the best we can for our country and sort it out. So politics are always about people, but government is about making decisions. And if you don't have the balls to make decisions in government, you shouldn't be in politics. Very good. I mean, it's, it's obvious just hearing you say it, how clear you were on that thought and on that mindset. Was that something that uh, came from early life or was that just something that occurred to you as you worked your way through? No, I think it's been there for a long time. It, in, in a peculiar way, I'd been in, in, in and out of government. When I was elected, uh, the government had a majority of two. That changed in 77. Then you had a period of, uh, of Jack Lynch, and then you had, you had Gareth Fitzgerald, God rest the two of them, and then Charlie Hawhey, and so on. A lot of changes. So you were in and out of government. And you learn a lot about people, about the mechanics of politics, but also about what your remit, which is given to you by the people, actually is. And that is to make decisions in the country's interests. So, so when it came in 2011, that you were six weeks from not being able to pay your teachers, your nurses, your guards, or whatever, six weeks, now, what are you going to do? I went to America, and the, the head of a chief executive of a very large corporation said, you know, what has happened to your country? Your reputation is in shreds and your integrity is in tatters. So I said, well, what would you do if you were in my shoes? He said, the first thing you do is show them you're serious. Show them you are serious. So he came back and said to government, I tell you now, we are not going to sweep this under the counter here. We're going to deal with it. And we called back all our diplomats, all our ambassadors, all our consul generals, all our people. I said, I just want to say this to you now. We are going to fix this. So, said the government, you know, if you're not prepared to put up with this, there's the door. I'm not going to be around here forever. We want to fix this while we have the opportunity. And the people expect it. No more than Jim Gavin with the fabulous Dublin team. He's got to make choices. Mm. And sometimes they're not nice. 
that you have to say to people, I'm giving you responsibility here, I expect you to perform, and if you don't, well, you know what the end result will be. I mean, you get incredibly zen, if you don't mind me saying. Mm. You're very, is that, that's not a new thing. We all know you as mm. this man with a level head, and everybody I speak to about you in preparation for this interview says the same thing, that stress was never an issue for you no. throughout this. I think that is yeah. something people would like to know about. How the hell are you doing that? <laughs> okay, well, I, actually, I, I, I never did suffer from, from stress, for, uh, whether that's my makeup or whatever. But, you know, uh, my wife was always a great source of strength to me in that at the end of the day, that's all you've got left is your, is your, is your family. So there's a lot of, you know, floss and glitz and wool and all the stuff that goes on about politics and all, the, all, of, the, all of that. At the end of the day, if you try to harbor all those things inside you, it's going to get the better of you. So you, you have to be able to say to your people, look, Charleth, you have a problem in that department there, and this is it. Now, are we going to sort it, or are we not? You can leave it behind the curtain, and it'll get worse. So we had cabinet subcommittee meetings. We could tease these things out. Mm. And so there's a line of action. Nobody might like this, but we're going to fix it. And of course, in politics, you can't get everything right, no more than, any, no more than anything else in life. But at least... You know, six months later, when the National Treasury Management Agency were prepared to say, well, we'll, you know, we'll dip our toe in the water again. Ireland was lumped in with the pigs. Remember that? Portugal, Ireland, Greece, and Spain. We were in there. And we were first out of that block. And Chancellor Merkel began to say to other countries, well, why don't you do what Ireland are doing? Why don't you make the decisions? So eventually... Fitches and standards and poors began to say, well, maybe they're not entirely junk status. It's beginning to rise. And I have to say that our relationship with this country and with the United States, with corporate America, with investment in our country, kept jobs moving, kept exports up, and was a source of great consolation. The six times I went to see President Obama, that you worked with the American Chamber, keep that moving, keep that level of investment going, stability, integrity, credibility. Would you invest in Ireland? Would you invest in that country? Will the government collapse? Are they serious? Answer was yes. I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, I often said to Michael Noonan, you fix an economy, don't hang around too long. Let the young people fly. I have no fear of the future. Climate change or whatever they want. We have a confidence in our young generation that will beat anybody, anybody. Well, let me ask you this, Enda, because that obviously will be probably the headline in terms of how history remembers you as a leader. Mm. And I wonder, having survived it and come through it with such flying colors, did that embolden you to go after the things that you did? A lot of things that other leaders had kicked down the road and said, no, I'm yeah. not going to apologize to the yeah. women of the Magdalene laundries. But you yeah. took it upon yourself to go after certain things I think that others would. I think you have to have a feeling for things, really. You have to feel it inside yourself. Now, you had the taboo subjects in Ireland for a very long time. Um, equality of marriage, abortion, uh, the scandal of sexual abuse. Uh, all of these things were so hurtful to people. I met them. I, you know, you tend to get very emotional about because I see their faces and what they went through. 
I mean, I, I, I spoke to a woman in Cork, and she said to me, you have no idea of what terror is until you hear the footsteps outside your door. Think about that as a 12-year-old. So you fix those things. We set up a citizens' convention to deal with the issue of equality of marriage. Because the politicians were not going to handle it. So you put it under a high court judge, had a very deliberate structure, men, women, gender balance, age, country, all that stuff. And one of those who served on that was uh, serving the tea in a coffee shop down at home, drawn by coincidence. And that man sat down beside me one day and he said, you have no idea of what it means to participate in that kind of an exercise. The feeling that you, you know, contribute to changing the constitution. Now, I, I, I admitted that I was a sort of, you know, skeptical about whether this would actually carry or not. And, and there was a woman at home who had um, four children. I, I know the family very well. And she said to me one day, you know, our second came home from school and he said, Mammy, I think I'm gay. She said, I cried for six months. She said, this couldn't happen in our family. And then she said, well, I realized that I conceived this child with my husband. I carried the child for nine months. I brought her into the world to love her the same as the rest of our children. And that's the way it is. And when that was accepted, there was an openness in so many areas. In all those meetings around the country, 80,000 young people came back to Ireland to vote in that. So, so this, was a, you know, this was a social issue that was festering, and it wasn't confined to town or country. It was everywhere. And it was in all families at some stage or other, touched some relations. And the same applied in the case of the Catholic Church and the issues that I addressed in the Dáil. And the Magdalene women, and talked to them. You couldn't but be moved by the story. And then we had the issue of, of uh, the other referendum in the case of, of, of abortion. And the people made recommendations, which the government accepted from a referendum, and put it into law. We were actually the first country in the world, Jarlath, to have a citizens' convention to take those recommendations, put them into a referendum question, and carry that and translate it into law. I call that democracy. Yeah. Beautiful. And everyone in here saw the emotion with which you spoke in Parliament at the time, and I can see the emotion on you now. I'd imagine that separating yourself from emotion at different times is the key to good leadership, but we're watching other leaders around the world, and one in this country, who can't seem to make that separation or certainly are allowing their emotions to negatively affect their leadership. My question was going to be something else, but I think I'm going to ask you, what was the first time you met Donald Trump? <laughs> well, 
Yeah, the first time I met uh, Donald Trump, I, well, the first time I spoke to him was I rang him up after he became president-elect. And I said, listen, congratulations. And I said, we have, a, we have a, a thing in Ireland that whoever the prime minister is has access to the White House every St. Patrick's week around that time. That's no problem at all. So, so we made that arrangement. And I went out to meet him. And in fairness to him now, he had the red carpet out from the gate of the West Wing right through. There were people there every two meters, and he was standing at the door with the long blue coat and the long, longer red tie. <laughs> and there were 300 press men here, and there were press people, and they were all there with cameras. And of course, I was expecting, you know, that he was going to tr catch my head like Brian Fenton and pull it in this way. <laughs> but there wasn't any of that. Uh, we had to shake hands, and we went into the Roosevelt Room. I spoke to him about golf, which is a big passion of his. I said, what kind of driver do you use? He said, a Titleist. I said, same as mine. Uh, I said, what, what degree loft is it? He said, 9.5. I said, same as mine. And didn't go any further. <laughs> By the time we got into the Oval Office, all those around the, the, the rectangle were Irish or Irish-American. We had a very good conversation about the undocumented Irish and other issues about Europe, where there's a great gulf of lack of communication and understanding at the moment. So he gave that time. Then we had a little press conference. Then we had the lunch on Capitol Hill. He couldn't pronounce the name Fanula, which is my wife, so he called her Viola. Uh, so I, as you know, if a row breaks out at home now, I say, now Viola, calm down a bit. That's okay. <laughs> so, so then we went to the, to the East Room, and there were a thousand people there, and you present the bowl of shamrock and all that. Said my piece about um, Irish Americans said, you know, Mr. President, remember this now. Next time you stand with watching old glory wave, think of the words of your own national anthem. The land of the free and the home of the brave. So we've got 50,000 out here, or some number in that, in that area. They're as courageous as their forefathers ever were, but they're not as free because they can't come home. I said, if you, if you legitimize that or find a way of legalizing them, they will emerge from the shadows, they will work for America, they will live for America, and they will die for America. What was his response to that? He was nodding in, 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 yeah. in agreement. Yeah. But then he changed his tune to go to Mexico and everywhere else. You know, so. Because it would seem like one of, his, one of his biggest weaknesses is playing to the gallery. Is literally playing to yeah, well, those that he believes mm. will react. Well, he's, a, he's a, obviously he's big in stature. He's got a, he got a lot of energy, but he's you know he's 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 conducted the presidency in in a way and with words that are unacceptable. He's polarized America, polarized America. But it may well be that the Republican uh, supporters may well elect him or re-elect him, and that's their business. Okay, so there's an impeachment process going on at the moment. In order to do that, the Congress is, is in control of the Democrats, but you need two-thirds majority in the Senate, and that might require 20 Republican senators to vote against their own president. I don't know whether that's going to happen or not. In any event, you're heading into the usual process of an American election. Democrats have a lot of candidates running for the, running for the, the nomination, and then you'll have the election. So... Like, if you look at the geopolitics of the world now, you know, Putin's been backing Assad in Syria for the last seven or eight years. 
supported by Iran and by the Hezbollah. On the other side you had the United States and Europe, the Turks and the Kurds. So a million moved from Syria into Lebanon, three million moved from Syria into the camps in Jordan where they are tonight, three and a half million moved into Turkey where they are in the camps tonight. The European Union came to a complicated agreement with Turkey to pay Erdogan six billion a year to provide medical attention and all of these things for for people in those camps, a very short distance away from Greece. You all remember the, the uh, photograph of the little boy drowned on the beach. These are very complicated things. Another million were absorbed into Germany in one year. Yet people saying we put up border guards and big um, fences in Austria and Hungary and Bulgaria. That's all geopolitics. The whole Middle East is changing. Seven million in the Yemen at the moment on starvation lines because of an economic war. You have all these things that apply across Morocco and Algeria, 180,000 cross the Mediterranean to Lampedusa from Libya, no Libyan among them, uh, from Eritrea, Somalia, the Horn of Africa, 39 found in a fridge here in, in, in Britain recently, all this human trafficking that goes on. And these things are you know, completely contradictory to our common humanity and to the issues that we're supposed to stand for. And then America decides to pull out of Syria, northern Syria, and what happens? The, 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 the Kurds have to go back down to Assad, who they've been fighting for seven years, and say, will you protect us from the Turks? So Russia got their port on the Mediterranean. Aleppo is blown asunder. You have three quarters of the population of Syria gone into other countries, uh, when this not, need not be so. And these are things that are, are, are happening on a, on a daily basis. And of course, your first question about when you get into politics first, now you have an avalanche of material and information, fake news and all the rest of it. It's very hard to know what to believe and what not to believe. So they've got a very polarized America, got a very different kind of presidency. You've got confusion here in Britain. In Belgium, 183 days, no government. Four elections coming up in, in, in Spain. You've had five prime ministers in Italy in the last period. What you need here is stability, clear thinking, and leadership that people can understand that you're acting in their interest. And that, that's certainly what he's doing, right? To go back to the question, Donald simplifies what you've described there as a really complicated geopolitical mm -hmm. situation, mm -hmm. simplifies it down, I'll look after you. There must be that temptation when you're in the top man, top job, to yeah. simplify it down, Play yeah. to the masses but, and get re-elected. But we have, in America, there are 35 million people sign their birth certificates or sign on, their, on the census that they're of Irish extraction. And the contribution that they have made, including Donald Trump's own people who came from, from Scotland, uh, has been enormous, the same as any other measure of nationalities. You go to Ireland in the 60s, white, Catholic, introverted, protected, traditional agriculture, that was it. Now go there, it's a hub of so many nationalities, the cultures, the engagement, the interaction, the lifting of spirits, the lifting of reputation, the contribution that they make, the confidence levels that has given young Irish people to stand on any platform around the world and more than hold their own. So our, our transformation was through our participation in the European Union. And the way that we are on this planet, it's the only one we have, 
they're 400 billion light years out now with the technology and there's nothing there, or so they tell us. So we've got to, you know, implement the best decisions we can to keep this thing revolving in the orbit that it's in. So, um, from that point of view, you know, you can't ignore the contribution that other peoples can make to your country. Is it hard for you to turn off how you ask, answer questions as a result of this many years in politics and just answer questions straight? No, it's not. Uh, was I disappointed in the All Ireland final? Yes. <laughs> was I disappointed in 15, 16, 17, 18? Yes. Okay, well, let me ask you a straight question then. There it is. That's just the beginning. To hear almost 60 minutes more of this conversation and hundreds more full-length Irishman Abroad episodes and shows, join us on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Help support the creation and continuation of this series for years to come. For less than a fiver a month, you'll gain access to all our episodes, shows, live events, and for a limited time only, everyone who signs up in the first two weeks of August will get my brand new stand-up comedy special, Notions 11, shot by my favourite director, Mike Donnelly, in Vicker Street in March 2020. That's hundreds of hours of entertainment, inspiration and laughter for less than the price of one of your fancy coffees. Over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. I want to say thanks to my ultrasound producer, as always, Brian Connolly, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible, and finally to our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw. Jigsaw.ie are a youth mental health charity that is changing and saving lives across all communities back in Ireland. Now, more than ever, they could do with your support. Go to Jigsaw.ie to see their great work, get some help with the young people in your life, or maybe through a donation, you can help them.